0: Welcome to this Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. I'm here in some lovely offices uh, in central London, uh, looking over, well, is it East London or West London? Uh,
1: we're East London, we're facing. Oh, no, hang on, that's BT Tower, it must be West London.
0: West London, in the offices of Bird and Bird. And with me is Jonathan Taylor, QC, who many of you will know as one of the leading sports lawyers in the world, Um, and involved with many clients, which we'll come on to. Um, Interestingly, Jonathan is not only an advocate, but also, um, and deals with a lot of dispute resolution matters and regulatory matters. But interestingly, also has a a substantial practice on uh, commercial and corporate matters, which I think is uh, particularly interesting. Jonathan, thank you so much uh, for taking the time out of your schedule. Um, My pleasure. I know that you haven't really even had a lunch yet. It's in the late afternoon, and um, such is the life of a busy sports lawyer absolutely well we're, we're getting to the weekend so everything's good first of all congratulations on getting silk um, thank you that's a, uh, a fantastic achievement uh, we were talking about it before we started rolling but really it is um i think something to be a, applauded and, and, a, and a great sign for, for sports lawyers generally that a sister and um, gets silk there's not many sisters who actually get silk um, and probably for those who it might be worth explaining what well, that process is for those who are outside of the UK um, and outside of England in particular who don't understand.
1: Sure. Um, well, a QC is is a sign of excellence in advocacy. So you have to be able to show um, advocacy in different fora, so it doesn't have to be the High Court. And I've never been in the High Court um, as an advocate. I would instruct um, other counsel then but it can be an arbitral tribunal, it can be a disciplinary tribunal, and I do a lot of that. The thing about sports law is that usually a dispute between members is subject to the rules, and those rules will say, you can't go to court, you've got to go to arbitration. So sports law, as it happens, allows people who want to be advocates but aren't high court advocates, nevertheless, to have a busy advocacy practice, and that's what... Um, I've managed to do, especially both domestically, uh, here in the UK, with sport resolutions and others, but also international federations have their own disciplinary tribunals. And then, of course, there's the CAS, Court of Arbitration for Sport. So, I made an application last year, and, and you have to put down your twelve, I think it's the twelve biggest cases in the previous two years. And actually, you don't fill in much in the form, although it's a long form, but you have to say in these 12 cases, here are the judges or arbitrators, here are the, ad- the advocates against me, and here are the professional clients. And then they can go and ask th- those people for, um, I guess, a reference or, or for comments on your abilities. So um, you don't get to you know pick and choose, cherry-pick the people who you know all like you, you, you have to say these are the cases and these are the people I was in front of or against and then They're the ones who actually have to do a fair amount of work because they all get tapped up and said right. Is he any good or not? Oh. It's a nice thing because you know, obviously I'm very I can't pretend I'm not very happy to get the recognition I was an advocate in the States and I came here and I thought well, why why are these barristers doing all the advocacy? but it's also Um, a recognition I think of sports law because that's all I do it's all I've done for 20 years and you know having a QC recognition there are some QCs who do a lot of sports law you know Adam Lewis and others at um, Blackstone but it just helps to show that it's a real discipline And, and what I mean by that isn't just pounds and pence we can prove be able to prove that for a while now but that it's a rigorous legal discipline it's not one that you have to be embarrassed about actually it's been my theory for a long time that actually you need great lawyers to be sports lawyers because it's quite difficult some of the law I do accept that that's entirely (laughs) self-serving, but I
0: actually do think it's (laughs) true as well. Yeah, I agree. Well, I remember when I started Law in Sport, and I used to say to some of the lawyers who I used to work with at the various international law firms, and I I said to them, I was was doing stuff in sports law, and there was a little bit of a uh, a, a snigger and um, a joke around, we we all know that sports law is not really part of, not, not really a legal discipline and so forth. And I've seen that change since I started doing Law in Sport, that people now take it very seriously I think partly given to the commercial value that, that's mean that, that mm-hmm. I think in law it's giving it um, I think when there is some significant sums in it for whatever reason the way the city works uh, I think people give it more uh, credibility but also I think the societal impact that it's had
1: both of those things are true I'm I'm, uh, you know for the public interest and for the money is it's a good area to practice law no doubt about it I'm not shy about saying that we're hearing a big you know city law firm we hold our own you yeah, know we're, you we're not <laughs> we're not the paupers <laughs> but, yeah. but i actually mean it even more specifically to say look if you want to practice in the sports sector and advise sports clients you need to know about um you know contract law obviously commercial law but also public law principles uh, eu principles ip law I mean, uh, the, you know the book that we do is, yes. what, 1,300 pages. And every year I think, well, now There's we need a chapter them. on this yeah. and a chapter on that and a chapter on the other. And these aren't easy areas of law. So, you know, it's not just... You can't just walk in and pick it up. But that's the journey. You are asking me about how I've seen it develop. I started 20 years ago this year doing sports law. Before that I was in the States and I, I did a little bit of sports law. But this was... I moved back to England because my daughter was born and we wanted to bring her back. And I saw a little ad in the paper for Townley's Sports Law. And I was going to go back to a Magic Circle firm and carry on doing the stuff i had done in the States. But I was thinking, if I do that, it's just jumping on a big bandwagon. I want to do something where I'm building. And this was, we want our first disputes lawyer. And I thought two things. One, I thought, well, that's good if I'm going to get in on the ground. But I also thought, well, what the hell is sports law? Yeah. You know, is it, is it contract and, and taught, you know, negligence claims? What is it? And when it was only when I got into it and I realized that there were these highly regulated um, sports with some incredible commercial value and, and this is 97 we're talking about this isn't the, quite the dark ages um, there was no real there was certainly no um, clear legal principles that said this is who runs the sport this is who who owns the value in the sport this is why the commercial rights are with you it was all frankly a little bit first on the block who grabs, grabs everything is, is in charge I mean you know, the people who are now the Football Association, it was just a bunch of guys who got together in a club and said, let's govern football. Uh, Bernie Eccleston did that with Formula One. He said, I I govern it, I run it, I own it. Well, it was, you know, sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy and not much more legal foundation than that. And that makes it fascinating because you come in there and it was Steve Townley at Townley's who wanted a litigator because he could see that... The rules were pretty underdeveloped, and yet the values were going to increase, and there were going to become disputes about who owned what. And so, 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 going back a step though,
0: I'm curious, why, why would you I presume you qualified here and then went to the States? Or did you qualify in the States first and then.
1: Yeah, I did a degree here, a law degree here, and then I did a master's in the States, and I stayed um, and I did the New York Bar. So, that was a long time ago. <laughs> that was 1990. And I qualified at New York bar, and I practiced in New York for um, seven years till '97. I, I took a, a, little, time out then to come back here and teach. But then I went back. Was there for seven years, and '97, is when we moved back from New York. And do you think
0: your experience at that time, sort of ch- looking at the, let's say, a more mature commercial model anyway in sport? Did that did that influence your decision so when you saw that advert in the paper and when you thought about it has that shaped any of your you know when you look back from nine ninety seven onwards has that shaped any of your um I don't know, understanding or, or i don't know uh, look, views uh, on, on sport
1: i mean it's a great pleasure to be a sports when you're at a dinner party, someone says, what do you do? You say, I'm a lawyer, and their they sort of face drops. <laughs> and then you say, but I'm a sports lawyer. And they say, oh, well, maybe it won't be so boring after all. <laughs> and, of course, the fact that you are arguing, applying legal principles to s- things that people are really interesting, interested in is great. But to me, if the law wasn't interesting, then I'd rather do something else where the, the using your legal skills... Is, it was rewarding if it wasn't rewarding in sports law I wouldn't do it so it's a great combination because everyone's interested and yet you get to use your legal skills and I've had many cases where we're sitting there arguing I, the, I remember clearly the um, football league when Wimbledon FC wanted yeah. to move to Milton Keynes yeah, yeah. and the football league said no and uh, Wimbledon sued Adam Lewis was, on, was against me And I said to the Football League, well, you know, why have you got this rule that says you can't move away? A a club cannot move away from the conurbation where it takes its name without the permission of the league. And they were all very clear that it was an important rule, but they were struggling to articulate it. And we sat there and and argued about it. And frankly, we could have been mates in a pub having the argument, why is it a club should stay there? And I was being paid to do it. (laughs) Now, that's good, yeah, right? But, you know, everyone likes sport, and I always get people come to say, look, I'm a lawyer and I love sports, so I want to be a sports lawyer. But actually, it's about... Understanding, you've got these legal skills, whether it's commercial, contentious, whatever it is, and you can really use. The, it's a sector where they need those legal skills. It's
0: not just well, on that point. Actually, one of the things I'm not sure if, if there's any truth in this. Is where you probably tell me I'm wrong, but um, hopefully not. One of the things I always say to people when people want to write for us or be involved in sports law, I think one of the things that I often get excited about is when I meet people who are not sports lawyers, who look at sports issues and go, who are good, well-established lawyers, and go, hmm, that's interesting. Let me take a look and I think That's what value some people, like good lawyers who are outside sport and come into sport and bring that experience, whether it's in the technology sector, IP, competition law, and say, I've seen this in banking or regulatory farm up being a good, great one. Um, yeah absolutely well competition
1: is a really good example i came in and the first thing i did was premiership rugby clubs against the rfu and the irb as it was then now world rugby and it was because sports got these rules and they're an agreement It means that your tool to blow it up or to attack it is competition law, saying it's an unfair agreement anti-competitive and i came in and there was this it was a fight about who controls sport who controls the value why is it that the IRB could say you can't plan unsanctioned events why is it they could say we sell the rights you don't and we looked around for authorities and there weren't any except in the states so we went to the US um, antitrust cases which had litigated these issues now in a different, you know, very different sports because basically, promotion basically and relegation. Of them, yeah, but, MLB, yeah. but all of them had had very significant cases. Same with, by the way, don't want to jump around too much, mm-hmm. but football league case in Wimbledon, the cases about um, clubs moving, well, that was the Raiders out in LA, yeah, yeah, remember? Yeah. Did that several yeah. times and had I'm several giving, antitrust cases. <laughs> but my point is, they did have some law where Similar laws were being applied to sport and they were grappling with, well, what difference does the you know, the specificity, as everyone says, of the sports sector make when you're trying to apply these rules? No one's saying, well, actually in 97, the IOC and others were saying they were above the law. I never believed that. But I do think you've got to take the legal principles and say we're not, you know, applying them to a football club is different from applying them to a supermarket. Mm. You know, there is something different about um, sport, which is you drive all your competitors out of business, you haven't got anyone to play, you've destroyed the product. So there needs to be cooperation between competitors to create the product. So already antitrust laws have to change to yeah. understand that. And that's the challenge for a sports law. It's not that you know, there's some thing called sports law, it's that all of these laws apply. The question is is there something about sports law that needs to be taken into account when you apply them, so you don't destroy the very thing you're dealing with? And that, if I, you know, if I was trying to sum it up, that's
0: what a sports law is supposed to do. So I think that's a, 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 a good analysis. Definition of it because that's why I you know I think that you've got the, obviously the body of you, know, you could argue about the expertise and, and sometimes it's all sort of irrelevant. Who cares? In the, for, you know I'm quite flippant about it sometimes in the sense of it's the reality and there's as you said it's applying the law to the sports sector or, or the sports clients and that's essentially all that matters really is it is happening. Um, anyway, on moving on though, and uh, you talked you've talked touched on a couple of you know in giving a couple of indications of the cases you've worked on. What would you say is your the, you know either the most let's start with the most interesting case that you've worked on. Um, look, I'm lucky. I've had a lot
1: of really interesting cases. I guess one of them, and one of the most high profile, was the cricket case, the ICC against um, Salman, Bat, and Asif, and Amir, the you know, spot-fixing case, which I, I was actually in Portugal with my daughter, who was young at the time, and we were in a swimming pool. And I got a call from Ian Higgins at the ICC saying, uh, this is about to break in the news of the world tomorrow. We've got to decide this, 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 and this. And I was literally standing in the pool with my daughter at the time. <laughs> She's always good for decision making. But, you know, so the, the, the story breaks the next day. The whole thing goes mad. The English players and the Pakistani players are almost coming to blows. Um The police are coming in. The CPS come in and say you stay out of it. Oh, it was a yeah, Crown Prosecution Service. It was, it was a bun fight, and actually that was a very interesting aspect of it because the CPS came in and said to us, well, we think this might be a criminal matter, and that means you must now down tools and stay out of it, and we will deal with it. And I said, really, Uh, where's the rule that says that? Because Mm. It's going to take you years and then eventually you'll say, oh, there's nothing we can do here and drop it. I've got players fighting with each other on the pitch and I've got everyone screaming about the integrity of the sport. This sport has to act. The ICC was very clear, we've got to act. We met with the CPS and we sort of said, not sure how it is you say that we have to stop acting because I don't think there's any rule like that. And we called their bluff a bit and and we were right and we did act and we acted quickly and it made for a few tense moments with the police and the cps but eventually we got to cooperate with them we helped them they helped us and we brought the case and prosecuted the case and and you know you know what happened we banned them and then they were charged and criminal convictions as well up to cass appeal overturned and a few years later they even admitted what they did Took them a few years, but they did. So from a, from a sports lawyer's point of view, I'm mean, a very high profile, very interesting. Corruption cases, very interesting. Very, like, doping, like non-analytical doping cases. Lots of different legal challenges, particularly because of the limitations on your ability to gather evidence. You've got the police who you want to help you, but not to interfere with you and then you've got the disciplinary process including 30 camera crews outside every hearing you have michael belloff was the chair of the panel he's obviously the godfather he knows what he's doing we had a we had a very interesting provisional suspe- hearing on the provisional suspension one or two interesting things happened there and then we had a 5 day no longer trial in doha with michael sitting in a, a brand new arbitration um I think we were the first case ever held that beautiful pristine and the judges were on these on this dais these great big chairs it was like they were on thrones <laughs> and I have to tell you Michael did quite like sitting <laughs> on the throne yeah. and we all had to <laughs> bow deferentially to him
0: and um, you talked it was interesting you talked about the relationship with the, uh, with, the with law enforcement do you think that relationship has now, because of a, that case in particular, I uh, say domestically, but I think it had impact internationally. Do you think that, that helped build relationships? Because it seems to be a much more collaborative approach, and or is it because there's more awareness of the issues? Or do you think that's a fair assessment, or, uh, or do you still think there's some some um, tension there? You don't
1: need to scratch far
0: beneath the surface
1: to realise that actually, it's there's still not. A lot of common ground about how these cases should be dealt with. If, if it suits the law enforcement, then they'll cooperate, and if it doesn't, they won't, won't. bluntly. Also, you know, frankly, some of these things you're saying, well, should they even be involved? We want them to be involved. I mean, that's the difficult thing for the sport. We don't want government to interfere, but sometimes we need government help, right? And the same with law enforcement. Don't want you to interfere, but we might need your help. Sometimes you say, well, I, I'm not sure that the law enforcement would have been, would have got involved in that ICC case if it hadn't been all over the news of the world that day. I'm really not sure. And bluntly, can I think of things that they should do that are as important or more yeah. important? Yeah, I can. Yeah, yeah. I, re- I remember when we set up UK Anti-Doping as a public agency because we wanted it to be able to cooperate with police and customs and others, and it's worked very well. But the first, it was Andy Sellers came along in, in, to the first board meeting, and he's a, a high up official at a serious organised crime agency. And I'm thinking, well, this is great, but on the other hand, haven't you got any serious organised <laughs> crimes yeah, yeah, to deal yeah, yeah. with? You <laughs> know, uh, so uh, it's always a bit of a tension. <laughs> and
0: what would you say? What really sparks I know you, you, you know, you're advising so many sports clients, so it's a bit tricky sometimes to say these things, but. What, what's at the moment one of the key issues that you think, hmm, I think this is gonna be an area where there's gonna be a, a lot more attention, a lot more focus on in the coming years? Well, I
1: t- well uh, it, the case, the most, well, last year, 16 was an interesting one because of all of the um, Russian doping allegations mm. and the impact of those, I should get to those. But before that, we did the IAAF and the Duty Chan case about hyperandrogenism, so female athletes with naturally elevated levels of testosterone not cheating
0: mm.
1: question is you know does it have an impact on the playing field and does the sport have a right to regulate it and why that was interesting and it, uh, is it it's interesting because it's, it's probably sports law at its purest i'm not cheating i've done nothing wrong but i have this um, this characteristic, which gives me an advantage over other people in the, in, the, in the same category of competition as me. And is it right for sport to intervene and regulate it? Almost the purest form of sports law you can have. It's the same issue as corruption, it's the same issue as doping, but it's the same issue actually as classification in the IPC code, right? Where do you draw the line and say, you know, the people in this condition can compete against each other, but then we're going to draw the line here. Same as, forget um, Paralympic sport, boxing. You say weight categories. Yeah. Well, why do you say, you know, 60 kilos, 90 kilos, 100 kilos? You're drawing what are slightly arbitrary yeah, lines. Absolutely. And the question is, well, what's the justification for them? And that is probably the purest sports law question I think there can be. And it's a very interesting case for that reason. I mean, it's got lots of other features. It's highly political. Um, it, it seems like sport has become uh, wrapped up in a much broader societal conflict. Um, but from a pure sports law point of view, it's well, if in fact this provides an unfair or an, an advantage, we think it does and actually the cast said they agreed it does, then the question is, is it unfair? did so you say, you you say to be we,
0: just so people know who... who we, the IAAF. Uh, sorry, sorry, just because no, I thought... That's true, yeah. but also
1: the IOC and others. So they still think it should be regulated. And, and remember, governing bodies' job is to look after the sport, and if they think that they need to regulate to protect the sport, they should do so. Mm. I mean, my biggest criticism of governing bodies is when they don't intervene when they should. Uh, Even if there's a legal risk involved,
0: if they think it's necessary, then they should be acting. And do you think, I think it's interesting with that, you know, not to get too much into detail, but I do think it's interesting because uh, I studied sports science as my undergrad and it's a developing area but there's a lot of research out there that, that, that talks with certainty on issues, and I think that, uh, particularly with administrators sometimes, as, as you know, there's a, uh, uh, how say, a difference in level of sophistication, experience, and knowledge in various administrators, and sometimes even with the best intentions, they can grab onto a bit of data. Yeah. And, and as you said, trying to do something, they think they're doing the right thing, try to do something, and maybe don't have the right research, or, and, and this is a constant issue with, No doubt in doping, as as, Dr. Rabin, I interviewed him ages ago, saying, you know, you've got research and you have to assess whether that, how valid that research is, has it been peer reviewed, etc. And so I think it's interesting because you've got that tension, haven't you, where you do want to, as you said, you do want good regulation of the sport and you want it to be as, as, I, was, I, don't, I don't really, I don't know if there's an equal playing field really really in sport or in life. There's in general, but as fair as possible. Hmm. Um, sort of an environment where people can compete in a, in a, in a fair, or as fair as possible um, competition. But there is that tension that they can get it wrong. and if they... I'll
1: get it horrendously, and, and you know, hyper androgenism it was about, it started off as sex testing. Are yeah. you a man or a woman? And it is unbelievably crass and stupid. But if you look at the story, it was the sports, it was Arnie Lundquist and others who said we've got this wrong. We need to understand what it is we really should be um, caring about. And the regulations have got nothing to do with are you a man or are you a woman. You're a woman, the question is your hormonal levels are different from most women, not for any reason of cheating does that mean? Is there a sufficient reason for us to have to intervene and regulate? And the scientists that they consulted, Martin Ritson, he, he came along to the CAS. He, he's on a committee of people who choose who gets the Nobel Prize. I mean, he, he's quite yeah. a pretty impressive professor. So, and the rest of them, very impressive bunch. So that wasn't, And partly it's because they, you know, they've made a few fairly significant missteps. But the IAAF couldn't be criticised for saying, well, we're just going to throw together a few people who know half of something and and get together some rules. They put some effort into it. So I, I think that's their job. And I think that what would be even worse is to say, we know there's a problem. We know that a lot of athletes are concerned about this problem. But it's all too difficult. It's too scary, and the risk of legal challenges too much. So we're not going well, to act. To so me, that's an abdication
0: of responsibility. Well, I think I think it's interesting because it, again, this is the, the I guess the interesting point of it is it is we don't, is it really like, what again when you're setting that that line is it a, is a perceived problem, yeah. is, it, is it a problem? But it's worth I think you're right in in terms of giving it the attention and. Um, bringing in e- experts to analyse it and giving it some thought because particularly as you said when you've got participants who are concerned about it um, there was definitely a responsibility to do it there and it's been a it, you know I think that's an, it's an interesting case because um, and, and, and and the, the hyperandrogenism just generally is an interesting one because I think everyone agrees that it's kind of an evolving area and that obviously science is getting better and better and and, and I think there's a you know, speaking to people on both sides of it yourself and people on the other side as well, that there's, a, there's definitely a, um, a desire to, to be more enlightened about, about what's going on. And also, the, 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 you know, within that, though, there's also an educational remit, as you said, to, to change the discussion between are you a man or a woman, and then this is actually about something completely different. And, and, and the level of education in it is woeful,
1: yeah. really woeful. So, and it makes them easy targets, and yeah. that's the problem and don't forget you know you've got the cas when it works well it does work well and so your regulation can be put up for challenge can put up for scrutiny you have to justify what you've done and and, and that to me is the law working well and it's the, if we can advise and help to shape the regs so that they withstand scrutiny great but that's this is the process that there should be and the governing body should be saying well this is what we think has to happen we're happy to be challenged and if we're wrong we're wrong but you know our job is to be the custodian of the sport we think this this regulation is needed we'll stand up and for what we think is right
0: and so you brought it up and so moving on the Russians <laughs> and that will I say Russian i like not really using that term but the the the, the Russian um, systematic doping from, from, the, from the McLaren reports um, where yeah. where to start with that really it's are we now going to have uh, so i've got slight concerns about that. it's a difficult you know there's been a lot of coverage around it but we looked for it and we eventually because of the whistleblowing and other investigations we looked for it and it, it was found do you think that there are potentially other countries around the world who have got the sophisticated, systematic, and if not countries, teams, uh, let's say, as we saw in cycling, for example, who have got sophisticated doping regimes that we're not picking up
1: on? Uh, I'm sure there are. I think, you know, corruption isn't country specific. Mm. It's not that the r- Russians are more corrupt than anybody else. That's a ridiculous thing to say. I suppose the difference is there. It it, it the evidence from mclaren is that it was systematic systematized Mm. and involving high-ranking government officials and i'd be surprised to see that in many other countries you can think of a few i'd be surprised to see it in any others but you know are um are gb athletes capable of such corruption yes are u.s athletes yes they are that's different from the Russian t- tactic of distraction which says well this is just political everyone cheats you're just getting at us I don't accept that mm. but at the CAS when we argued the case and one of the arbitrators said well you know what about US what about mm. Kenya what about and I said listen you bring me evidence that the government of that country has corrupted the s- system and cheated its athletes and everybody else's athletes then we'll bring them up and ban them too So it's not about which, it's not about Russia, it's not about which nation it is. But if you think about it, what happened there was government interference, which is supposedly one of the worst no-no's, right? For the IOC, it's an outrage. And not just government interference, but government interference to stop you from um, enforcing one of the key rules, to keep the sport free of doping. And that's why the thing that troubled me most about 2016 was had the IOC saying well we can't do a ban like this because it's unlawful it, it's punishing the innocent athletes and they're still saying that i mean russians and others are still saying that and i have to say i thought about that and i thought well hold on who else was it said you're punishing innocent athletes south africa They were kept out of the Olympics for, what, 20 years? I'm trying to think now. Based on, what was it based on? The athletes were innocent. Arguably, the sports organizations were innocent, unlike in Russia. The government interfered and said, you cannot, you have to discriminate between Mm. blacks and whites. And the IOC eventually said, well, hang on, non-discrimination is a key tenet of our sport. And we've got a government interfering and saying, you can't do that. That's unacceptable. You're banned from the Olympics. Now, and I, we looked at the South African arguments. You know what they said? The South Africans said, you're punishing the innocent. And the IOC said, sorry. And they kept them out. And that's why I'm sort of shaking my head when I when they get to Russia. Yeah. We say, the Russian government is interfering and stopping them from enforcing a key tenet of sporting integrity, and you say it's unlawful to ban them because it's punishing the innocent. Well, it's exactly what happened in apartheid, and we made that argument in the court, and I have to say I was amazed when we got there that some of the principles we were arguing were even up for grabs. There were very few precedents, but it was, you know, can you as an IF require your member to enforce the anti-doping rules, and if they don't, can you chuck them out? The answer is, of course, you can, yeah. right? And then, and that means the athletes are also out because they're only in by becoming a member of a federation that enforces the rules. That's the way you ensure there's a level playing field through, throughout this, the whole world. So, to me, it was well, it's obvious.
0: It, well, it's also interesting because the, 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 I think I agree with, with, with that analysis. And I also think that there is that point where, though, in a system like that, quite clearly there is an abuse of position. And we've obviously got the duty of care review going on here, where people are entrusting themselves to these coaches, to the government, and we've seen the same thing happen in India and other countries where, and in, back in the day, in, in GDR, for example, where the athletes are maybe not that well educated from all positions and they're exploited and then they get to a position where they've almost got a learned sense of helplessness or maybe they don't and uh, there's accusations in Russia that if you did complain that you were being doped then you were automatically found to have had a doping violation and they ch- uh, they chucked you off. So in that there's two things going on isn't there? There's this like, let's deal with one issue which was the the competition part and the, the mem- does the membership association have a right to ban them? And the other thing is like, what should we be doing as in sport to make sure that we're caring for those um i guess really vulnerable individuals but
1: that's when they said you're punishing the innocent athletes i said no no we're trying to protect the innocent athletes in russia as well as outside russia because they're being exploited and i think that's right and of course it's true that that means that some innocent clean athletes were excluded from the games but I guess I would ask, and I said this, and the CAS agreed, if you had a situation where the member could breach its regular its, the fundamental conditions of being part of the sport, so not enforce the anti-doping rules, and yet its athletes could go to the Olympics or to the World Champs or whatever it was and compete, same as everybody else, then how are you going to stop the member how are you going to force the member to abide by its rules, why would they ever do that and and I think it's clear because actually the what is the benefit of being a member of an international federation, ok well your officials get to go to some nice dinners right um, you get in the record books what really counts is you get to compete at the international Absolutely. competition so if you strip them of you know their titles and their invitations to the annual meeting well so what hmm. it, if you don't exclude them from international competition then the sanction is meaningless which means the obligation becomes meaningless and I think that became clear and those cases the IWF case and the IPC case I don't think they were close I really don't think yeah. they were close and do you think
0: um Drawing on lessons then from that, what what is the future? Because we've got, say for example this week, I think it was four more Russian athletes from retrospective bans, sorry, retrospective tests. They've gone down and targeted tests, you know. um, They found them from years ago, they banned them from court uh, and stripped them of their their medals and and accolades. This seems to be like an increasing trend in sport. We're gonna have this level of uncertainty that someone's a champion and you go, well actually they're not a champion. What are the sort of takeaway messages, or how are we going to deal with this? Because there's athletes I'll speak to, for example, who are you know they've past the statute of limitation, or maybe there's not direct evidence that an athlete who's been who's been found to have been involved in a systematic scheme four years after they beat them at a competition, and then they go, well, hold on, they're, they're absolutely, they you know they feel at least absolutely that this person had cheated them out of a medal, and that's why prevention is
1: so much better than cure mm. in this area more than any other, which is why. Uh, the focus now we've always focused on compliance by individual athletes for years that's all we've been focused on instead of being focused on compliance by signatories requiring them to not only have the rules on their rule but enforce the rules you know actually have a test distribution plan that is doesn't just have numbers, but is an intelligent plan, so mm. you will catch people. Actually, have an intelligence function, so that you can investigate cases. Actually, have a way of cooperating with other ADOs, so you can share information. Um, and we're talking, that, when you're
0: talking about intelligence, you're talking about you know, grading evidence, like using like, like the VHA to grading evidence, the source of the evidence. Just because I, I say this, because there be people listening who are working it. At, 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 in sports organizations, for example, who who say intelligence is generally a concept but there's there's actually a frameworks in place to and that's the police model that everyone, yeah. UCAD
1: and others use. And absolutely there are you know you can tick the box with a with a shoddy rule that looks good, or you can actually implement it. And WADA now is about saying we're gonna look at whether you're actually doing it and whether or not you're doing it effectively. In other words, whether the holes in your net are huge or small. And the point I always wanna make is, not only will that detect and deter, but it will also allow athletes who are clean to say, look, it's tough. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's tough for me to cheat. I have to give my whereabouts every day. I could be tested every day. So can I cheat? I could cheat, but it's not, you know, it, all of these rules allow you to say, I think I can believe this guy. Yeah. Because what could be worse than achieving or sacrificing yourself and achieving it, uh, gold and then people saying, we don't believe you did it fairly. Yeah. I mean, how, what could be worse than that? So the doping rules for me, are the purpose of the doping rules is to allow athletes to say credibly, I'm not cheating. And they can only do that if the signatories are standing up and applying the damn rules. I was in Lausanne last week, and there was a strong, strong consensus amongst the stakeholders. And that was at the the WADA symposium. Yeah, Yeah. last week or the week before, whatever it was. And not just the athlete reps, but others were saying compliance is the most important thing. And, and I, and I well, think I did, I you're going to re- see some you're going to see some
0: changes there I think well I, I think we've, just, just briefly in the past I did some research with Emma Mason and um, uh, Tom I think, God I forgot his surname but anyway Tom did some research for me um, sorry Tom if you're listening um, did some research for me in 2013 2015 at all the Nardos and if you're looking at for example the digital presence that's their websites and links to athlete friendly information it was hugely alarming in the sense of the lack of of information and accuracy there, so I think you're right. Compliance is a, is a big thing. On that point, what's your perspective? I know that I'm just dropping this on you because we haven't had to, we didn't do really much prep for this. So, um, so it's fine if you don't want to go into too much detail. Looking at the uh, Sharapova case, for example, and the delegation to third party of of your um, you know certain um, requirements, so or behaviours. If one thing we know in the corruption cases, for certain, and in football for example, is the influence that some of these third parties have on the athletes. Now in a sport where agents are so, in sport generally agents have got increasing um, relevance, increasing influence. At what point do we, you know, or should we say, that if an athlete has to abide by this rule and if they delegate this to you, should the third party be sanctioned and held as the same standard as the athlete? Because it seems... I just thought about this and thought, it seems unfair to me that someone who's profiteering off an athlete doesn't have to meet the same standard, yet the athlete has to tell where the whereabouts are, have all these requirements, and then if someone, like, uh, I'm not making any statement about the actual strap over case, I'm talking about the principle, but let's say for an example, that an athlete delegates their, either, you know, we've had the cases before and whereabouts, but, or if they, they say, you're going to keep me updated on what's happening on the, the prohibited list. And they don't do that, and that person's representing 40 different athletes, and they do it 40 different times. You know, that has quite a significant impact, and yet they're just raking in the money off it. Surely, we should be in a position where we think, actually, at what point do we start regulating these third parties who have so much influence?
1: Well, it's interesting you say that because I don't disagree, but the regulator should intervene when the market doesn't, right? And to me, it's astonishing that some of these agencies haven't gone out and said, we guarantee you athlete that we will take care of this and we'll do it properly and you can trust us because we've hired these experts these mm. guys and we therefore have a competitive advantage over other people you should sign with us not with them that i think would be quite an effective pitch by the way the you can delegate responsibility but not liability is a yeah. vital rule and it's and it applies just as much to Signatories as it does to individuals, but uh, and we argued that in the IPC case. The RPC said, Well, it's not our fault. Mm. The Russian government, if the Russian government has done this, and we said, You can't avoid liability that way. But I'm surprised if you if I don't know why the marketplace isn't reacting to that imperative by saying, You know what, we can win clients, agents should be saying, We can win clients by indemnifying them by guaranteeing them. That we will take care of this uh, on risk if we don't, and gearing up so that we can do it. And uh, if they did that and they did it properly, I would have thought they'd be able to sign up all of the young talent there is. And and, and that was you know, so, yeah. You, 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 the regulator is not supposed to intervene unless the market doesn't do it. I'm surprised the market. Doesn't just do so it.
0: say for example with the pivot association, which I think was a welcome introduction into the. The code—that's a difficult provision to truly enforce. So, if you speak again, particularly off the record, to to a bunch of elite, particularly former elite athletes, and they say, "Look, there's some coaches, particularly in athletics, for example, are still operating, and all of a sudden they've got athletes now. I used to know them years ago, and now they're they're high-performing athletes, and some of the athletes, you know, in the past have been uh, found to have doped." How do you effectively, because you know, there's a, there's a guy, I'll give you an example, I listened to a, a podcast of Joe Rogan with a guy called Louis Simmons, who's a strength coach in the US, who's a power lifter, not under any regulation, openly t- been taking uh, testosterone replacement therapy for many, many years. He's got his, 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 um, his gym, does loads of stuff apparently with athletes who are NCAA athletes and compete. Now, I'm not saying he's telling them to dope, I don't believe he is. Um, and he's quite open about, you know, what he what he does but and he's any very knowledgeable etc but surely you would think with someone like you know who's doing that sort of thing he's exactly the type of person you'd want to sort of keep away from the athletes because they'd be getting a confused message
1: yeah yeah
0: and you balance that
1: against their their freedom to associate with yeah. who they associate yeah. with and they're innocent till proven guilty but I suppose yeah. My reaction to that is to say, well, if, if the NADO and the IF are doing their jobs, then they note that as intelligence and they say, right. I'm feeding that into my okay. uh, my test distribution plan okay. and I'm going to test these guys. I'm right. going to say, let's make sure they're okay. Because again, it's about. That
0: seems you know, more proportionate. That seems like a, 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 a proportionate approach. I well, it's supposed
1: yeah. to be about allowing them because maybe they're the pure as the driven snow and they, they're mm. getting these suspicions about them and that's not fair mm. so I'd love to see a mechanism that allowed people to say look yes I'm going to his gym but you can test me I mean that's the thing about the whereabouts rules everyone said what an outrage they were and I, you know I, I wrote them so I, I have to defend <laughs> them but actually <laughs> Uh, and th- I've said this publicly you know, Andy Murray and others said this is an outrage it's like um, you know prison for us and then when they had to defend themselves after Armstrong and everyone was saying well okay so these tests could do all these tests but if they're not good tests they don't mean anything so you know tennis players you don't get much testing how can we believe you and they said well you can believe us because we have to give our whereabouts every day. We can't hide. We could be tested at any time. In other words, they were using the rules to demonstrate the credibility of their achievements, and that's what the rules are supposed to do. So I only
0: say that because I say that means I was proved right. <laughs> of course, um, you're a good advocate, right? <laughs> this is the point. Um, so, what, what do you see moving on? I like could quite happily talk about various issues with you, like for, for many many hours. And I appreciate you're extremely busy. Um, what do you see the future role of lawyers both domestically in the UK or uh, or the same or in, in or collectively in European sport now the Brexit <laughs> not for much longer. But um and internationally. What do you see the role of of of, of, of lawyers being both in house and in private practice? Well,
1: that's a very broad question. I
0: mean purposely so <laughs>
1: uh, you know, I, I do think that in the twenty years the, the sector has matured in the sense that there's sports law courses, there's your own um, digital resource, there's a now book, sports text, and a few few mm. texts. There's high quality firms and high quality lawyers practicing sports law. They even make people silk if you practice <laughs> sports law. That shows more maturity. There's still remarkable gaps. Uh, James Segan just the other day, last night was saying, it's still crazy, you can't find the cases, they're not mm. on a database like, somewhere. Yeah. And he's right, he's right. So there's still ways to go, but I do think now more and more governing bodies, clubs, agents, players realize that they need strong specialist advice. And again, that's self serving, but it happens to be true. So you're still going to need highly qualified, you know, excellent, hard working right lawyers just applying the law and working out the problems. The, the new thing that's come in in the last year or two for me is these investigations, commissions, inquiries into usually corruption, mm. whether institutional, on the field, you know, safeguarding. Yeah. The, the uh, You've got the IAAF now after its various travails, now has its own independent integrity unit. We're waiting for Adam Lewis's review to see what happens in tennis. But this integrity function and these, they're going to need more people to investigate and make findings about uh, potential corruption in sport. Maybe not on the field, maybe off the field. But that, I'm seeing more and more, you you had um, the BHA review that... um,
0: The best, that was... By the, the, uh, the Came out of the publishing. gym yeah. best,
1: um, so that there was one. You had, you've got obviously Sir Anthony Hooper with the IAAF. Um, you get the, the now there's the FA one with the child protection. The so I think lawyers are going to be on our investigation
0: as well, which was something else was yes.
1: Yeah, you're going to get lawyers being asked sit and uh, conduct an inquiry into this or investigate these allegations. Um, particularly from federations that can't, investigate, you know, can't yeah. investigate alleged wrongdoing by themselves. So you want a strong, independent, highly qualified lawyer to, to look into it for you. I think that – I've seen that trend start, and I don't think it's going to stop.
0: I should have asked you, and I will let you go. Cause uh, but on this point, actually, on the IWF integrity, you, you mentioned – I remember you talking about it uh, as it was being announced – You've got quite strong views on that. I think it's interesting. Do you see that as the future of having these independent uh, bodies? And why was it uh, the IWF felt? Because given the the, the the amount of trouble the IWF was in, why it was so significant and important to have that body? Because I was, I must admit, I was a bit sceptical. I remember it being mentioned this may or may not come about, but it really does look like a truly independent body, which is I actually think is is I think is a very positive thing. So, well, I do too. But you've got to
1: be careful because there's this debate now people are saying international federations are conflicted and shouldn't be responsible for doping, Mm. for example, because they want big stars and so they'll cover up doping. And Mm. I just, uh, clearly that's a potential conflict and an apparent conflict which needs to be addressed. But international federations are there for the long-term interest of the sport. And if they know what they're doing, they'll know that in the long term, what they want to do is stamp out doping not allow mm. it to flourish and in other words there isn't a conflict of interest but there is something to be addressed if anyone if anyone succumbs to the short-term view that says we can't ban that person they're too big a star so what do we have at the moment well under the world anti-doping code you have um, any adverse analytical finding is reported not only to the IF but also to the NADO and to WADA mm. and you have to report and tell them what you've done same with the NADO and NADO has to tell the IF and WADA so you've got sort of a triangle of people looking at each other it's transparent and more accountable to me that g- there are some f- defects in the system but yeah. it can work and just jump into that NADO's, NADO's can be conflicted and yeah, there's a big debate now I get people get upset with me but the fact is that Nardos have a potential conflict in the same way with national level athletes does it mean or their own national athletes yeah. does it mean they are corrupt no it means there's the same potential conflict it gets addressed the same way everyone looks at the other and if if there's a decision that looks like a hometown decision by a Nardo the IF can appeal it if there's a decision by the IF that looks like they might be, you know, protecting their star, then NADO can appeal it. And if both of them are doing it, WADA can appeal it. So could that mechanism work? Yes, I think it can. Is it a good idea to say UIFs have been terrible at protecting your sport, so we're going to take the responsibility away from you? I'm not sure that's the best response it should be we're going to make sure you discharge that responsibility we're going to force you to comply with the rules that way you've got this this body which is set up to protect the sport
0: actually protecting the sport so so on that point then there's something i'll pick up on which is um which i know that the for change which is terms of office which is quite important so you were saying about it's not within the long-term interest unfortunately as we've seen in the past the type of individuals who have um, Being involved in the sport, I've done it for, you know, not always, but you know there's always these people who are doing it for their own ego and yeah. and therefore it becomes about them as opposed to the sport. Um, but I guess, again, you can acknowledge that risk, manage that risk by having mm. terms of office. Yeah. And so within that and that compliance function then, how important is transparency and having it on it? Because you need that transparency to have an honest assessment of that risk.
1: You do, and you, ha- you need to have... A strong board that will look at the executive and examine its decisions and not get be too uncomfortable to do so and lots of sports governing bodies the board or the council mm-hmm. or whatever it is they just don't they don't have enough
0: control to properly scrutinize what uh, people are doing do you think then I keep asking more questions sorry I will finish on this one last question do you think given that say we've just had the code for of, of governance for sport that's been published, and it's you know, and, and it was based on around 140 different research papers and uh, organisations they went to in the code of governance uh, for corporate governance. Um, here, there seems to be, and someone was mentioning to me, I won't mention which international federation, but their board had 44 members on, or more, 40 plus members on the board. Now, given the weight of information that we seem to have and, and research about effective decision making and stuff like that can we not, is there not going to be, or should there be the IOC for example, actually saying, look, here's, we understand that there's a lot of stakeholders involved, but here's at least a limit on the size of the board and the function.
1: Well, the IOC's got its principles of good governance. It's had them for years, over a decade now, and you would have thought that that would translate through. Um, The problem is the IOC sometimes doesn't lead quite as strongly as it might as well. And there are, there's no doubt, I mean, don't forget as well, they start off as volunteers. After all, you know, many of them aren't paid and they are trying to contribute to the sport. But it gets to a point where there's a large layer, usually of old white guys, who are, you know, at the top, and there are people underneath who would love to get in and who would be great, who would really bring something to sport, and they can't. And it means that you don't have a true meritocracy and actually good governance bluntly is about good decision making which is about having the best people on there and um to me it's that it's that um preventing people from advancing from moving up from proving themselves and and being able to give the contribution they want to give it's the it's the lots of blazers at the top that are stopping them from getting Mm. up to those positions of authority and decision making that's the biggest problem and that's
0: where the terms office is so important because it it creates you get a natural um, transition
1: and i I found i tell you this is the same with law firms if you want the thing to be properly run if you've got really good partners they won't run it but they'll make sure it's run properly because they don't want to be exposed at the back end if you've got a weak partnership Then they won't. So, what I'm saying, if you could get the best people always push, always developing, and always rising to the top, you will find that the governance almost takes care of itself. You won't need people to tell people you must have. This mix on your board, or you must have yeah. these type because it'll be so damn obvious. They'll be enforcing it themselves. It goes back to the the market
0: regulating. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, don't need to. Well, I, I say this is one of the things I'm doing a fair bit, I and mean, I did a podcast recently on, on on transgender participation. I'm doing stuff in the equality and diversity space, and I say the same thing time and time again, which is often, it's, even if you don't believe in things morally and ethically, it's just good business. Mm. It's good business, and if, if you I know, people don't like to talk necessarily always about the business of sport. But let's just say that sport is a business, uh, for argument's sake. Um, it's just good for the sport. It's good for your business. It's good for the organ, or say, the organisation to be more diverse, to have um, better governance, and everyone wins. You win as an individual because you have a better legacy. I always, I always um, staggered sometimes that, that that that's not always the case. Um, on that note, Jonathan. Um, or JT, or John, as everyone, <laughs> as you go by, so many things. Um, thank you so much for your time. Um, it's been a long overdue interview. Congratulations again. Thank you. Um, it's a, it's a, I think it really is a, g- a good thing for, for sports or as a whole. and know it's confusing a personal achievement, but I do think it's a, genuinely a, a really good thing for sports or as a whole. Um, thank you for your time. I said if I could have quizzed you for much longer, um, but I know you'd... rather probably, probably,
1: Another 20 years. There yeah, yeah, there.
0: that's it. You probably want to get back to your family because it's the weekend. But, um, yeah, thanks for your time. Pleasure.